Thank you, Dan. Thank you, choir and instrumentalists for beautiful music. We all have friends and family, don't we, in the Houston area? I want you to know that First Baptist Church is there. Our disaster relief trailer is there in the Katy area. Uh, we received a text that said, thank you, F.B. Samarillo, for your assistance in Katy. My mom sent me this picture, and it means all the world to her. This is a shower and laundry unit with our guys, and first responders can come to us. We will wash their clothes. They can take a shower. They can be refreshed and go back uh, to their work in the midst of the devastation. And so we're thankful for the guys who are down there. And in the future, if you're looking for your ministry at First Baptist Church, being part of our disaster relief shower and laundry unit is a, is a great, great ministry. And we are grateful for the guys who are there. You pray for them and for their safety as well. Some of you have asked, we are going to send some funds there, and some of you have asked, can you add to that? You can. You can bring it by the church office or hand it to me or whatever you want. We're going to work. I know everybody's collecting, but I like to collect where I know where it goes. And whatever you give to us will go to local Baptist churches in the area that's been flooded, and local Baptist pastors will give it to those who have a need. They'll be 100% used for those who uh, have a need and no administration, no salaries, none of your money. You know, some of these people collecting 10% gets there. 100% of it will get there if you give it to us to send to the churches there in Houston. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verse 17 through 21. He's a pastor of the Tallawood Baptist Church in Houston. He's one of my dearest friends. He's an outstanding preacher, a scholar, and one of the finest leaders in Texas Baptist life. But when Dwayne Brooks was five years old, five years old, his father went to Vietnam as a private in the war. The year was 1967. Dwayne's mother told the story to him, and she said that when his father left, Dwayne, who was very, very bright, all of a sudden he just stopped talking. He withdrew into his own world. Nothing in life without his father, nothing was safe and nothing was certain. And so, as a little boy, Dwayne just went silent, checked out from life. It was the first year that he ever heard the C word, the cancer word. His grandmother, who was his babysitter and caregiver that year, his mainstay, had a terrible seizure, and they found out she had melanoma. Within a few short weeks, she passed away. His father is now at Vietnam in the war, and his primary caretaker has died from melanoma within a few weeks, and, well, he just withdrew all the more into himself. During that year, his father sent him audio tapes so he could look at his father's picture and play the tapes. But there's a long distance between hearing a voice and hugging a picture and sitting in your daddy's lap, having the flesh, the warm flesh of your father. It was a tough year for Dwayne to be separated at five years of age from his father, knowing that his father had gone to war. As much as one can understand at five years what it means to be 
at war, separated from his father. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that all of us are separated from our Father, our Heavenly Father, by the sin that is within us. Look at 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. If anyone is in Christ, meaning if anyone is in the sphere of Christ, if anyone is in the body of Christ, the church, if anyone is united with Christ in his death and resurrection, if anyone is in Christ, and there is a radical change within us, because if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. In fact, in the Greek text, there's no subject and no verb. Most translations supply, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The he and the is aren't in the Greek text. In fact, it should be translated rightly this way. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. Paul is probably referring to two things here. There's that personal transformation when we place our faith and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that we become that new creation. We become paradise within ourselves again. But there's another meaning. Christ is the divider of time. This is not a personal transformation, but a cosmic transformation. The old age has passed away and all things are created new again now that the Messiah himself has finally arrived. In Christ, new creation. It can be said of Paul that the, the past was dead to him. With all of his ideas and all of his hopes and all of his ambitions, they were dead in Christ. And he was a, a new man and a new universe. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation. This new thing Paul is saying is better than the Exodus. It's better than the freedom that we got from our slavery, slavery he's saying. It's better than the exile. It's better than coming home from Babylon. It's even better than that because now he has delivered us and set us free from the bondage of sin and death. It leads us back from the exile of our estrangement to a new reconciled relationship with God. I want you to look at verse 18 and following. Listen how many times you hear the word in a noun or a verbal form of reconciliation. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled, there's the first time, reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling, number three, the world to himself, and not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Number five, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
just a few verses. And five times the idea, the word reconciliation is there. What does it mean to be reconciled? First of all, I want you to notice we are reconciled by the will of God. We are reconciled by the will of God. We need to understand this morning that God is holy and righteous. God, by his very nature, must lash out at sin. For God not to lash out at sin would not be loving, but rather it would make God indifferent. The first thing we see this morning that in this reconciliation that God himself is a driving force to our reconciliation with him. Every time the word reconcile is used as an active verb, God is a subject. God reconciles us. Our reconciliation to God begins with God. He is the subject. God reconciles to us. Every time the verb is in the passive form, we are the recipients of the action. It is God, we are being reconciled by God. Whether active or passive, God is the one doing the action. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. There's nothing I can do to make myself right with God. It is God who begins the process of a reconciliation. Reconciliation. The idea that God wants to be reconciled, the idea that God loves us and wants to reach out to us is an incredibly unique idea. All the other gods with a little g of all of history are not loving gods. They're indifferent. They're apathetic. They're hostile, maybe even. They're violent, but they're not loving. The Greek gods could be uncaring or they could be angry and hostile. The god of Baal was an indifferent god. Even the American god, Deism, Benjamin Franklin, it was like a, a watchmaker, this God. He made it, said it, and walked away. He didn't really love or care. God of apathy. Or even worse, the God of Melech of the Canaanites was violently hostile, and one had to sacrifice one's child in order to get on the good side of Melech, incinerate your son, and maybe then Melech will pay you some attention. Until this God. The world had never known a loving God. There is no God who loves other than the God of Israel. There is no God who loves rather than the God of Scripture. He is. God is love. And God begins the reconciliation in himself. We have a God who by nature is a Savior. You don't have to wonder Will he receive the sinner? His name is Savior. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know him as Savior. He's a God in Jeremiah 13 who weeps because he cares and wants to be reconciled. He's a God that's found in Jesus of Nazareth who looks at Jerusalem and weeps because he wants to be 
reconcile. Sin always incurs God's holy wrath. God can't treat it lightly. He can't sweep it under the rug. God can never be reconciled to sin itself. God, however, does not turn away from sinners and leave us to our just deserts. No. While you and I were still sinners, while we ourselves were in open revolt against God, God acted in love for that reconciliation and brought that hostility to an end through the crucifixion of his son. God loves us and begins reconciliation. Number two, not only is God the driving force, the author of reconciliation, but he brings this reconciliation about through Jesus. Not only is God the author of the reconciliation, he brings it about through Jesus. Look at verse 18 and 19. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses against them. Look at verse 21. He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, and only in Christ and through Christ, God does not count our sins against us. What does it feel like this morning to have a God who will not take your sins into account? Who, because of the crucifixion of Jesus, is willing to forget every wrong you've ever done? How can he treat us as if we're sinless? Verse 21 has the answer. He can treat us as if we have never sinned because he treated him who had never sinned as if he had sinned. He made this Jesus who knew no sin to take on our sin and to become sin on our behalf that we can become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ is made a sinner. In the New Testament, really clear that Jesus never sinned. John 8, 46, Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin? No one does. John 14, 30, Jesus declares that Satan has nothing in me. In Hebrews 4, 15, the writer of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, one who's been tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. 1 Peter 2, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The New Testament tells us anything about Jesus. It tells us that he never, ever sinned. 
Even when Satan himself took him to the wilderness and tried to tempt him to turn the stones into bread, he didn't fall. The only reason that Jesus can help you with your sin and help me with my sin is that he has no sin of his own. Christ became sin in order that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the one who had a sinless life, died a sinner's death on the cross, estranged and separated from God. So much so that when he's on that cross, our, our song said it a moment ago, the Father looked away and Jesus felt it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father looked away because his Son had your sin and my sin upon him. What was coming to us, he received on our behalf. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had personally committed every sin that I have ever committed and every sin that you ever committed. The innocent died for the guilty and the holy died for the human. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived my life so he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' life. And so... When he looks at us, he can say, Rebecca's perfect, Michael's perfect, Stephen's perfect, Rachel is perfect. It's the greatest exchange in all the cosmos that he who knew no sin becomes sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a third thing I want you to see. God is a driving force. He reconciles us through the Son, but we have to respond in obedience. Look at verse 20. Be reconciled to God. In fact, he says, God is speaking through us, and I beg you to be reconciled. God initiates the reconciliation. It happens through Jesus, but you must respond. I know there's a heresy in Baptist churches today that says you don't really have a choice. It's a pretend choice. Paul thought you had a choice. I beg you, be reconciled as if it all depended on our response. I beg you, make the decision. God is calling you through us, Paul says. Say yes to this reconciliation. God initiates it. It happens through the Son. But Paul begs people to respond. It remains up to us. We are created to have volition, a will, a decision-making power. We have to accept God's offer of reconciliation. Even as he initiates it, he will not make you respond. He's done all he can through his son, but you must say yes. There's a fourth thing I want you to see in this passage. Because God is a God of reconciliation, we are to be a people of reconciliation. 
Because God is a God of reconciliation, we are to be a people of reconciliation. God gives us, verse 18, the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed us to the word of reconciliation, verse 19. We have a responsibility to be reconciled to others in our life. Whatever it means to be a peacemaker in your family, a peacemaker in humanity, we are to be those folks. There are wars that rage within our families, aren't they? Wars with our sibling and wars within our marriages and wars between parents and children. People on one level who appear to be friends and who on another level are nothing but adversaries and competitors and strangers with a terrible capacity for wounding each other. Oh, the wounds are no less real simply because they're internal. Sometimes we fight in our families to be noticed, and sometimes we fight to survive, and sometimes we fight to be loved. Sniping and skirmishing, defensive maneuvers and naked aggressions and guerrilla subversions, all part of life for us. But even as God initiates reconciliation, we are to be the people of reconciliation. What would it mean in your relationships to having been reconciled to God in Christ to now be reconciled to your brother, to your sister, to your son, to your daughter, to your neighbor, to your father, to your mother. We are reconciled by God through Christ and now we have the ministry of reconciliation. Dwayne Brooks remembers the day a year later, his mother said, your father's coming home from Vietnam today. Oh, Dwayne said, when can I see him? I'll go to the airport and it'll be too late. But when you get up in the morning, your daddy will be home. Dwayne said the anticipation of his reconciliation with his father meant he couldn't sleep that night. Sleeping light, he said, he heard the car door in the driveway. And now at six years of age, he heard those big steps of his daddy that he hadn't heard in a year. Walking up the sidewalk. He said, to this day, I remember the click of the key and the doorknob and the turn. He said, when I heard that, I got out of bed and I ran around and I watched the doorknob turn. He said, our porch light must have been one of those old-time yellow lights. I don't know. But all I can remember is seeing this bright yellow light behind my father and the silhouette of my father's face as he walked in the door after a year. And Dwayne, who had stopped talking, 
ran to be embraced and reconciled with his father. However sweet that reconciliation was for a six-year-old son and a father coming home from war, there is no greater reconciliation than that between you and your heavenly Father. We are estranged because of our sin, and he begins a reconciliation. He does it at the price of his son, and you must respond. Then he calls you to beg others. I like that word, beg others. Be reconciled to your Father. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never made that decision. You do have a choice. God has initiated his reconciliation with you and he's done it through the death of his son. But I beg you, in the name of the one who loves you the most and gave us his son that he could call you righteous. I beg you to come and say, Jesus is Lord. Maybe you're watching by way of television this morning, and this is your morning, your day to say, I'm going to be reconciled to my heavenly Father through the crucifixion of his Son. Paul says, in him we are the righteousness of God. Let us pray. Oh, God, it's a remarkable thing that you would want to be reconciled to us in our sin, that you would want to be reconciled so much that you would come in the form of your Son and take on our sin, that we could be seen as righteous. Perhaps there's one here this morning who needs to come and say, I, I want to live, leave my sin at the altar, and I want to live in the reconciliation through Christ. Maybe there are others who would come to be a part of this church family today. We pray they would come. In the name of Jesus, we pray.